Well, good morning. It's good to see you all. Thanks for gathering here this morning for bringing the church into a YMCA gymnasium. And thanks for bringing the church into whatever space you happen to be. Uh, if you're watching and gathering with us online, so thanks for bringing the church and uh, inviting us into your living room or dining room or wherever it is that, that you are. And so if I've never had the opportunity to meet you, my name is Jamie. It is my great joy and privilege to serve here as one of the pastors at Crosspoint. And this morning we are embarking in this, this series, um, this journey through Advent. So as we get into Advent th this morning, I want to talk to you for just a, a few minutes because we're going to look at a different theme each week. And so we looked at hope last week, and Pastor Eric did a great job kind of kicking off our Advent season and this series that, that we're in. And this morning, we're going to talk about joy and the joy that we have in the Lord. We, talk, we just sang it a moment ago. And in fact, that song that we just sang, I want to talk to you about some of the history of it for a moment. So I don't know if this will be new for all of you, but I imagine for some of you it will be. I learned some new things over the, the past week or so. And I wanna to talk to you about a guy named Isaac Watts. And so you see his uh, picture there, all right? Uh, I wish I could rock some hair like that. That would just be amazing, all right? Um, but Isaac Watts, you see he lived from 1674 to 1748. So that was a while ago, all right? And he was a prolific writer. In fact, it started at a very early age. So he eventually became a pastor, a theologian, a, a logician, if that's how you, you say it, all right? Like, he was this brilliant man, um, and he had this penchant for just turning everything into a rhyme. Now, that has great benefit because he wrote some 750 hymns, all right? Some of which that we know, like Joy to the World, that we just sang, and then When I Survey the Wondrous Cross, things like that, things that would be very well known in the, the church. But also think about this from his parents' perspective for a moment. If every moment of every day you had this child that was just brilliant but was turning every little idea or phrase and then speaking the, these rhymes, apparently, and understandably so, it drove his parents a little bit nuts. And so there's this story that's been passed down through history. I don't know who was there to record this. This was hundreds of years ago, but we're just gonna go with it because I've read it in numerous articles. It even shows up on his Wikipedia page. So it must be true, right? Um, but in this, uh, there's this story where he is, the family is gathered for dinner and they're praying and he actually starts doing this rhyming like with some of the prayer and his dad is just done. His dad's pastor, he's pro prayer, I guess, but he was just like, I can't take the rhyming anymore. And so he pulls young Isaac aside and they go into some other room and it's time for young Isaac to get a spanking, all right? And so apparently as he was getting the spanking, here's what he said to his father. Oh, father, father, pity take, and I will no more verses make. Um, now, I don't know how that went for him because it's like, well, you're contributing to the problem right there. But this was Isaac Watts. Now, that's sort of funny anecdote, but one of his big life endeavors was he started going through and doing a modern day sort of paraphrased translation of the Psalms. He made it through 138 of the 150 Psalms. And in particular, what he would do is he wanted to make sure that the Psalms were understood in light of the reality of Jesus. Like he was captivated by the thought that the Bible is telling one story from beginning to end. It's like this redemptive history of who Christ is, what he came to do, and what he's going to do when he comes back. And he thought, I want to help translate these into a way and kind of showcase and highlight so that the people he was pastoring would understand that when you read this, it's not just this antiquated, nice little thing that happened you know, hundreds of years ago, but rather it's telling a story and about how we can be part of this epic story. 
And one of the things that he did, and you heard the Fields family read this as they came up and lit the Advent candle this morning, is he did a lot of work with Psalm 98. And it was his work in Psalm 98 as he set that to verse and he began to think through the implications of what this communicates in light of who Jesus is and what we know and what the psalmist could only look ahead to. It is there that he wrote joy to the world. Like that's what we've just been singing. Now here's what I wanna put before you. And here's the fascinating thing. I'm not trying to burst anybody's bubble, all right? Uh, we're singing it during the Advent season, all right? Um, if you got that on your Christmas playlist, on your Spotify or Apple Music, like it's amazing. It's one of my favorite songs. But it is not a Christmas carol. It is technically not a Christmas song. Isaac Watts did not intend for this to be a Christmas song. And what I mean by that is it's not a song about the first coming of Jesus, about the incarnation. I mean, even the line that we sang early on, I will not sing it for you because it would be bad for everybody, but do you notice Joy to the World? It's not the Lord has come, the Lord is. It's looking ahead. And so what we're doing in this Advent season, and part of the reason for even singing that song this morning, picking that text, looking at this particular psalm together this morning, is it's about, in the Advent season, there's this longing for the second coming, the arrival of Jesus, where he promised that he will come back and set everything right. And so yes, we celebrate the first coming of Jesus, and we put up the Christmas lights, and we do all that, it's amazing. But we wanted to spend the first couple weeks of Advent, because traditionally and historically, it's not just about the first coming, but it's about the second coming and this longing that we have. And so I want to explore this psalm together and then even help us kind of understand the song that we just sang together about how it's ultimately about this longing for Jesus to come back. So if you would do this with me, if you brought a Bible, please turn to Psalm 98. If you didn't bring a Bible, there's a great way to follow along, all right, is go to cpwp.life on your phone and you swipe over the second card that says message notes. The text that will be in this morning is there. Anything that's up on the slides this morning will be listed there. There's space for you can actually add notes, email them to yourself. Now, kids, all right, can I have the kids in the place? Everybody wave if you're a kid, all right, there you go. All right, awesome. So kids here in person, kids at home watching, all right, we have something we wanna challenge you with, all right? So kids that are here, you should have received something that looks like this, this is my sermon notes, all right? I wanna challenge you, I wanna encourage you, fill some of this out, Draw some things on, on there. And then afterwards, if you filled this out, come see me out in the lobby. All right, we've got a special, uh, a little special prize that your kids director, Miss Jessica Green, has, has put together. All right, and so you can come get one of these. Now, kids that are at home, we're not leaving you out. All right, here's what you can do. All right, you see my email address there, jamie at cpwp.org. You fill out, get a piece of paper, you take some notes, have your mom or dad or whoever you're, you're with, all right, take a picture of that and email it. And your kids director, she will send you something in the mail this week. So you get mail, like not just email, like actual regular mail, all right? So you can look forward to that. So kids, you got it? Everybody good? All right, any parent here that's just like, can I fill it out and get a prize too? Come on, maybe, we'll see, all right? So, all right, so Psalm 98, we just heard it read a moment ago. So what I'm gonna do is just walk us through, there are three distinct sections in here. And we want to explore this theme of joy. Like it's a psalm about joy and rejoicing. Now listen, I'll be the first to admit, joy 
for some of us, we got to fight for it. And then even if you're like, no, I come by joy a bit more naturally, 2020, right? I mean, it's been a year. And so I think it's, there's this battle for joy. There can be so many just little things of life and the big things of life circumstantially that, that rob us of joy. I was reminded yesterday in a very loving way of my lack of joy. We had a, we were getting ready in the next hour or so, it was Saturday afternoon, we had a family photo shoot that we were going to. I don't think we've ever done family photos like in our entire uh, life as a family, um, but we were going to do this. And I was still staying working on stuff for sermons and things for the service today. And I was kind of pushing the envelope of like how much time we needed. And my wife very lovingly said, hey, you should go get ready now because if you don't, you're gonna start yelling at everybody, all right? Um, it's just this recognition that like, not always the most joyous. I was like, well, I'm not gonna yell at everybody. I'm just gonna yell at the people that are doing the wrong things, right? But anyway, so there's this real battle for joy, and this psalm is going to help us. So look with me at verses one to three, and what we have here, and I'll read these again, I would say is, it's a rejoicing in Christ our Savior. This psalm, as Isaac Watts thought about this and he wrote joy to the world we're looking at Christ as our savior Christ as our king and Christ as our judge and so in the first three verses Christ as our savior we're going to rejoice in that and so we heard these words a moment ago oh sing to the Lord a new song for he has done marvelous things his right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him the Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. And he has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. And all the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. And so in this forward-looking psalm, there is initially a call to look back. And so it's important for us to take time to remember. It would be a very important and helpful thing for all of us if we took time to remember God's faithfulness. And not just to take, a, you know, 30 seconds, but like, what if you wrote some things down? What if you had a conversation about that? What if you journaled some of that? What if you just took some time to reflect? It doesn't mean it would erase all the hard things, but you would see God has been faithful. And so what the psalmist is doing is there's this rejoicing in God's work of salvation. And most scholars believe this is a reference the psalmist is calling to mind to the, to the nation of Israel, to those people. He's saying, remember our history. Remember that we were slaves in Egypt. It's a reminder of the exodus. And so when you read this language, his right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. This is exodus language. This is a reminder that once we were captive and now we've been set free. And what we as Christians, if you're a follower of Jesus, get to rejoice in is that once you were captive to sin, dead in your sin, I was dead in my sin, I was captive to it, I was in shackles, I was, I was chained, I couldn't, I didn't have any freedom, and Christ has set me free. This is the story that we get to celebrate. We get to rejoice in Christ, our Savior. But the propensity is to forget that. So maybe a question to ask yourself this morning, a question I need to ask myself continuously, do I have spiritual amnesia? Or I am quick to forget all that the Lord has done. Do you remember this, this film? This is early on. Christopher Nolan uh, obviously does many, many amazing, uh, many amazing films and works. Um, I felt really old when I, this movie came to mind this week. And I was like, oh, I remember that from a few years ago. And then I realized, 
yeah, a few years ago, it was 20 years ago, Christopher Nolan did a film called Memento. All right, anybody remember, remember this particular film? And in this particular story, even if you haven't seen it, the, the main character, he's trying to solve this mystery of something that's happened to his wife. And he literally, he has no ability to form new memories. And so he'll have a conversation and within 15 seconds, like it's just gone. And so what he ends up, or maybe 15 minutes, I forget the exact detail, but what he ends up doing at one, there's one particular scene where he removes his shirt and you realize all the important details that he's trying to remember, he has literally had tattooed onto his body so that he can read it, kind of look in the mirror and kind of put together and stitch together all the things that he has forgotten. Now, I'm not advocating in this Advent season that you go and like get all tattooed up. You can go that route if you want, all right? But the call is this. How can we be a people that would remember? Like, I've got spiritual amnesia. I forget all the time the things that the Lord has done. And in a year like 2020, it is so easy to just have things circumstantially, legitimately hard things cause me to forget. It's why Paul, over and over again, like in Philippians 4, you go read that, he's like, rejoice in the Lord. In case you didn't hear that, rejoice in the Lord always. Well, what about this, Paul? What about when this happens? No, no, always. Because what this is speaking to, and maybe a way to think about this, is God's single-handed salvation. Church, the Lord himself wants to free you up from any notion that you have to earn the affection of God. Like when you look back over these verses, it says he is revealed, this is the end of verse two, he has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations, and he has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. The fact that the righteousness of the Lord gets revealed without the work of Jesus, that's a terrifying prospect. Like he's gonna reveal his righteousness. Well, what does that show you? And what does it show me? It shows I don't have any righteousness. I don't have anything to contribute to this. There's nothing that I can do to earn the affection of God. Let me encourage you in this, in this Advent season, Be celebrating, fight against the spiritual amnesia, remember the Lord's work, hear the words like the Apostle Paul, I'm going to read this section, I'll put it up on the screen in a moment, in Philippians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul is thinking about his heritage, his lineage, if there was ever a guy that could have done the right things in order to earn the affection of God, like he had the resume. And maybe you are somebody that grew up in a church environment that you really felt this pressure, like you gotta do all the right things and there was very little freedom and it felt very weighty. That is not the gospel. That is not what Jesus has come to do. And Paul has this realization and he ends up using, if we can say, Paul ends up using some sort of like uh, kind of potty language here, which I won't go into in family style service, but he's gonna use this word rubbish, all right? So you can go do a word search on that later on. But anyway, Philippians chapter three says this, Paul says, whatever gain I had, as he thinks about his past, about his spiritual kind of resume, I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. And there's that word. In order that I may gain Christ and be found in him and not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. But he says, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Paul is saying like the psalmist here, the righteousness of the Lord has been revealed and the Lord has given us his righteousness through his son as we trust 
in him. And so the first thing in this Advent season, you want to you stir joy, you want to stir your affection for the Lord and not have circumstances, because you hear it, Paul saying, right, like he suffered a lot. Go read the book of 2 Corinthians that we studied a number of months ago, as even at the height of the pandemic when it first hit. We were in that book providentially, and Paul is talking about all the things that have happened to him, but he continues to rejoice. How can a man like Job who loses everything, said that though the Lord slay me, yet I will worship him. It's because there's this battle to keep coming back and to remember the Lord has been faithful. The Lord is going to see things through. So there's this rejoicing in the salvation that we have in Christ our Savior. And this Advent season is an invitation to look back, but then also as we look back to say, if the Lord has done that, he is going to be faithful to his promise to come and to set everything right. And so look with me at verses four to six. Not only is it rejoicing in Christ our Savior, but rejoicing in Christ our King. And now here's this, this call to song. It started in verse one where it, where it said, oh, sing to the Lord a new song. And now here in verse four, make a joyful noise to the Lord all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre, with the lyre and the sound of melody. And with trumpets and the sound of the horn, make a joyful noise before what? Before the King, the Lord. Now, those of you that have been around Crosspoint long enough, you know one of my biggest fears is that during the worship set, this mic will be on and I will be broadcast for all of you to hear it, now even onto a live stream, all right? So, because I don't have any ability to sing. So I get to make a joyful noise, like I'm down with that, I get that. The part about like the melody and all, like I completely lost on, on me. But regardless of where you are in terms of musical ability and singing, what the Lord is inviting us into, he's literally calling all of the earth all of creation, as we'll look at in verses seven to eight in a bit more detail in just a moment, he's saying everybody is called in light of what the Lord has done and in light of what he's going to do to join in in praise, to actually rejoice in Christ our King. But there's a call to that. Now, I don't know about you, but this might cause some questions. Have you ever wondered why is it that the Lord is so bent on calling people to praise him? Like, is he that insecure that he needs a group of people to be like, hey, please tell me how awesome I am. Tell me all the good things that, that I've done. Like, is that what's going on here? And if you're familiar at all with the work of C.S. Lewis, I love the works of C.S. Lewis, he wrote a particular little, this little book. It's called Reflections on the Psalms. And in it, and he even makes fun of himself. He says, maybe some of you never had this hang up. But he's like, here's a legitimate hang up that I had. And maybe you too have had this hang up. And it's an entire chapter dedicated to this idea of praise, of rejoicing. And he begins to think like, who is this God that demands praise? Like, why does he need to demand it? Like, what is it that we bring him? Is like God having a bad day and please, you know, remind me how great I am. Okay, now I can kind of go about my business. Like, that's not how it is. So what is this whole deal about praise? And so he asked this very pointed question, just does God need our praise? And what Lewis began to discover, and what I think is so key for us as we think about joy, and we think about rejoicing even in the difficult times, what the psalmist is tapping into, what is telling us, what Isaac Watts enjoyed of the world, what it's calling to mind is this. 
God does not need our praise, but you and I need to praise God. It's how we've been designed. It's how we've been created. And there's something beautiful that happens when we praise God, we actually end up experiencing the presence of the Lord. So here's the, here's the caveat. There is a lengthy series of quotes from this particular chapter, but I want to put this before you. Don't feel, again, you don't have to furiously try and write this stuff down. It's all at cpwp.life. But just soak in this for a moment. Here was his thought process in regards to does God need our praise? Lewis says this, but the most obvious fact about praise, whether of God or anything, he said it strangely escaped me. I thought of it in terms of compliment or approval or the giving of honor. I had never noticed that all enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise. It's true, right? And so he continues, he says, the world, it rings with praise. Lovers praising their mistresses, readers their favorite book, favorite poet, walkers praising the countryside, players praising their favorite game, praise of weather, wine, dishes, actors, motors, horses, cottages, countries, historical personages, children, flowers, mountains, rare stamps, rare beetles, if that's your thing, okay? Even something politician, even sometimes politicians or scholars. Except where intolerably adverse circumstances interfere, praise, and get this, almost seems to be inner health made audible. I think Lewis is spot on. He says, enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise. I mean, think about it. The things that you enjoy, you begin praising it. No one has to say, hey, remind, remind to tell somebody that. Like you, you do that, whether you tell somebody or you post it on social media, you're like, look at this food, look at this place that I, I went to. I mean, what are all of those things captured? Like it's a way to praise and it just spills over. And then that phrase that Lewis uses, he says, it almost seems to be inner health made audible. Lewis is speaking about the fact that praise and the call to praise reveals something about our inner health. And so, church, let's think through this. How is your inner health? Meaning, how is your joy? Is it dependent upon circumstances? Is it this sort of fleeting thing? Well, you're having a good day and so suddenly you feel joyful or is it, is it tethered to something much deeper and much stronger? Do you, do you actually, are you, do you have a greater stability because you're actually anchored to the work of Christ and what he's done and the promises that he's going to, he's going to come back? My inability to rejoice and to praise says something about my inner health. It should be like this light on the dashboard saying, hey, pay attention to that. The fact that you can't praise, the fact that you can't worship, the fact that you don't actually feel like doing that should be an indicator that there's something going on. There's something that my heart has believed I've got to have this go a certain way because if it doesn't, joy is out of the question. But that's not how the Bible speaks of it. It's possible to rejoice, to praise, to have joy independent of circumstances. And you see this time and time again. And so Lewis continues, look at these last, these last two quotes, this is all out of this same chapter. He said this, he said, 
I had not noticed either that just as men spontaneously, spontaneously praise whatever they value, so they spontaneously urge us to join them in praising it, right? Isn't she lovely? Wasn't it glorious? Don't you think that magnificent? The psalmist in telling everyone to praise God are doing what all men do when they speak of what they care about. I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise, and this is key, not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. That the way God has designed things is that if you're going to actually enjoy God, like as you praise him, that's the appointed consummation. And then Lewis concludes this way, he says, so it is not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is actually incomplete until it is expressed. It is frustrating to have discovered a new author and not to be able to tell anyone how good he is. To come suddenly at the turn of the road upon some mountain valley of unexpected grandeur and then to have to keep silent because the people with you care for it no more than for a tin can in the ditch. To hear a good joke and find no one to share it with. The delight is incomplete until it is expressed. All of this drives at a key thing in this answer to, does God need our praise? No, God invites us to praise because it's his way not to seek love for us, from us, but to showcase for us the love that he has for us, his pursuit of us. Maybe a way to think about it is God is actually loving us through praise. Because when you and I praise God, when we stir up like our affections, we say we need to remember who he is and we praise him. It's not because God is insecure. It's because I'm insecure. I forget that I'm loved, that I'm cared for. I forget the things. I got the spiritual amnesia. And in the praise, there's this thing that's happening that the Lord is revealing. I'm with you. And he reveals his presence. And what he is doing in that is he's showcasing his love that he has for us. And so when the Lord invites us and he calls us, like the psalmist is saying, praise the Lord, again, not because he's selfish and self-absorbed and God's some sort of diva, right? But rather, God is saying, you need this. This is how I've designed things to be. And so we celebrate that Christ, he's our savior, that Christ is our king and he is worthy of our praise. And then look with me at the last couple of verses here, the last three verses. It's a rejoicing and this one can be tricky because we don't necessarily normally think this way. Rejoicing in Christ as our judge. And we are a culture, certainly, that's like, hey, quit being judgmental. Don't, don't judge me. Like, you do what works for you, and I'll do what works, works for me. And you, you, know, you live your truth, and you do all of that. Like, how would we rejoice in Christ as our judge? Well, this lays it out for us. And in 7 to 9, it taps into, so look with me, kind of before we deal with the judge part. It reminds us, of just the state of all of creation. Like the creation itself is designed to bear witness. Like this is what Romans 1 talks about. Like everything is bearing witness to the reality of God. That everybody, whether you are a follower of Jesus or not, should be able to look out and see, even in this fallen, broken world, the grandeur of just this creation. And it should stir something. And it points ultimately to our God. In the creation, it says this, so let the sea roar, this is verse seven, and all that fills it, the world and those who dwell in it. 
Let the rivers clap their hands. Now think about that imagery for a moment. Like all of the rivers as if they have hands and they're just going, God, woo, you're amazing. Like that's sort of the imagery there. Like let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy. So there's this chorus of praise from the hills. And then it gets into before the Lord. For he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with the righteousness and the peoples with equity. And so how do these themes go together? God's going to come and judge, and why is there this praise? Well, everything has been subjected to this decay. Ever since Adam and Eve in Genesis 3, where they had perfect communion with, with God in this vertical relationship, perfect communion with, with themselves, like in community kind of horizontally and out to the creation, everything was flourishing. And then they said, God, you're holding out on us. We want to be a God unto ourselves. We, wanna, we want our own truth, is what they said. Everything began to unravel. And so Romans chapter 8, let me put before you just these few verses kind of in the middle of it. It speaks of creation. It says this, for the creation waits with eager longing. Like this is currently what is happening. The creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation, don't we feel this, has been groaning together. If you, didn't, if you weren't aware that there's sort of this groaning, like this year has brought that to the forefront. The whole creation has been groaning together. But it, look how it describes it. In the pains of childbirth, until now. Now, stating the obvious here, all right, I've never given birth, all right? Um, but you know that this imagery, whether you're a man or a woman, whether you have a child or not, like, you know that there's to be pain, all right? Even though I tell my wife, like, well, I've had a kidney stone, so it's kind of the same, right? Like, no, 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 it's not the same, all right? And what it's talking about is there's this groaning, there's this pain, but what is on the other side? Like, what ends up happening is it results in joy, absolute, just this unfiltered, just this praise and this joy of like this new life. That's why this imagery is being used. Like this is where the story is heading. All right. So the, unlike the pains of childbirth until now, and it says this, and not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. You know what that's speaking of? It's speaking, we want the second advent. We want Jesus to come back. The creation wants him to come back. All of creation is singing and crying out, Lord, please come back so that we can join in fully in the way that we were designed to. And every human being, like deep down, there's this longing for things to be set right. And so in verse nine here, as this psalmist concludes, what it is speaking of is that God is one day, he is going to come back. This is Advent language here. Not first Advent, this is second Advent. This is the coming again of Jesus. It says, before the Lord, for he comes, it tells us, to judge the earth. And he will judge the world with righteousness. That word there is this idea of just setting everything in its proper order, like it's right and it's true and it's beautiful and the peoples with equity. Meaning if there's something that has been, you've been dealt with in an unfair way, like 
ultimately with Jesus coming back, it's not your battle to fight. You don't have to avenge yourself. The Lord will set everything right. And I like that thought for when I think of all the ways that like I've been wronged, and you probably like it when you think about all the ways that you've been wronged, until we look at it from the other perspective and realize there's tons of ways that I've robbed, wronged other people, that I've sinned against other people. And if the Lord is gonna judge me with equity, I don't know how this stirs up rejoicing. This actually puts me in kind of a terrifying spot. And yet, we see the storyline of scripture. We see what Isaac wants. What was he trying to do with this psalm? He wanted to write a song in joy to the world to speak of Jesus when he does come back and when he actually sets everything right. It's like when he says these words, right? Again, I will not sing them, but it's in the lines that we sang just a few moments ago. No more let sin and sorrow grow, nor thorns infest the ground. No more curses, no more Genesis 3. He comes to make his blessings flow. And look at the language. Far as the curse is found, far as the curse is found, far as, far as the curse is found. The curse has affected everything. It has affected you physically. It has affected you emotionally. It has affected you spiritually. It has affected you psychologically. All right, we could just keep going. It has affected us socially. Like there's brokenness, there's disruption, there is chaos where there was never supposed to be. And so you think of the darkest, most difficult, painful thing of your, in your life that you have dealt with, you currently are dealing with, or maybe is your worst fear that could possibly ever happen. The, it says this, far as the curse is found, the blessing of God, the grace of God, it goes further. It eradicates that curse and turns it actually into blessing. And the reason that we can celebrate and sing joy to the world and long for Jesus to come back as the judge is because of this truth is that we actually need the judge to be judged and that's what happened. That Jesus himself said, I didn't create any of this mess. I didn't do any of this. I didn't cause it to unravel. I created it perfect. And I have every right to come back and to judge and to say, you're guilty and you're guilty and you're guilty and separate us from him forever. And yet what does he do instead? The writer of Hebrews tells us this and here's what we'll close with. The writer of Hebrews takes us back and says, if we're gonna talk about joy, there was a joy that the Lord Jesus had and it was a joy that was set before him when he thought of what it would take to get us back. Here's how the writer puts it. He encourages us, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The judge himself became judged in your place so that you and I might experience a joy, that we might be called back into how we were created to be, that we are called not to just praise a sports team or praise a good meal, as amazing as those things, or praise travel or praise a, you know, like a, a person or a newborn or whatever, but that ultimately we would praise God himself and realize what we were created for. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, that he willingly went in your place. He dealt with the separation by crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
that occurred on the cross that you and I wouldn't have to be separated, that you and I could be part of the family of God, that you and I could know these words of joy to the world, to actually have this joy and say, this is the story that we're part of. So Jesus, we pray that you'll come back. We're longing for that day and we're trusting that you're going to because you've been faithful every step of the way and we know your promises are sure. And so church, here's what we're gonna do. I wanna give you just a moment. Quiet your hearts. Take some time to, to ask the Holy Spirit, what is it you need to repent of? In your battle for joy, where have you allowed circumstances to be the louder voice than the voice that says, you're my beloved son or daughter? And let's remember Christ's faithfulness, his faithfulness in the past, his current faithfulness, and his faithfulness to come back again, and we're gonna rejoice together. And one of the ways we're gonna do that is so, if you're here in person, if you're a follower of Jesus, you don't need to be a member or partner of this church, but it is a meal for followers of Jesus. And so when the worship team comes back up in just a moment, we're gonna sing a song together. And if you wanna stand and join in singing, if you wanna stay seated, you wanna take some time in prayer, however you wanna do that, just some space to reflect. But this song is gonna be going. And during that time, we invite you to come up to the table and grab one of the, uh, the elements here. Those of you that are at home, again, if you're a follower of Jesus, we invite you to get elements ready during this time. And then I will call us back up after this song and invite us to participate in together so you just kind of hang tight uh, for that. So let me, let me pray for us as we get ready for communion that even th this meal, it's this means of grace that God has given to us. Like we get to feast together. It's this little appetizer of what one day will be this joyous celebration. We gather with all of God's people down through all of the ages in worship of our King. So let me pray for us. Father in heaven, thank you for your kindness, your grace, your faithfulness, your mercies that are new every morning. Thank you for the joy that you provide us. Thank you that you invite us, that you command us even to praise you because that is the best possible thing that we could do, the best possible way to live. And you know that. You're our creator. You're our designer. You want us to experience your presence. And so, God, as your people right now, we want to praise you. We want to praise you through song and through prayer and through this meal. And we, we ask that we would experience you now, that you would help us to know the joy of our salvation. And, God, for any that may not have trusted in you, God, I pray that today is the day they go from death to life, that they that they go from suppressing the, the truth of who you are and what you came to, to do and how you provided a means to rescue and that they would actually joyously celebrate new life. So we thank you for your continued work. We thank you that your grace flows down far as the curse is found. Like there's going to be no spot in the new heavens and new earth where the curse will exist and it will all be eradicated and everything will be glorious and beautiful and harmonious the the peace of god god that you designed things to be and so as we worship through song and in a moment as we participate in this meal god i pray that you would get the glory that you deserve and i pray that we as your people we would just experience a deep and abiding joy we pray these things in jesus name amen